0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Centralized Justice broadcast. I am Federico Ast, I am President of the Cooperative Cleros, and we are today with Thibaut Schreppel, um, who is an Associate uh, of Law at VU Amsterdam and a faculty affiliate at Stanford University's Codex Center. He also holds research and teaching positions at the University Paris 1, Pension Sorbonne and Sciences Po in Paris, and he's a blockchain expert appointed to the World Economic Forum and the World Bank. And he's a pioneer in the field of computational antitrust, which is the reason why I have been following his work for, for a long time now. And so welcome Thibaut, I'm very happy to have you in the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. De- delighted to, to have a conversation with you.
0: Well, let's start by, um, I mean, Learn, learn a bit about you i mean I, i'm curious about what is your background and how you became interested in competition law in the first place wow um
1: so my background that's the easy part i'm a lawyer by training um so went to law school uh, i've done you know all the five years in france actually then i studied in the us and i completed a phd with a two supervisors, one one in, in Paris and another one in Chicago. Uh, so I was uh, working on EU competition law and antitrust. The reason why I got interested in that, um, um, you know, members of, a, of my family are uh, were very active and uh, well-known for some of them, respected uh, psychologists. So I can mm-hmm. talk about that for a very long time, uh, I suppose, because my dad was in... Uh, you know, I've seen that from a very early young age. my my dad being doing all sorts of business activities. the last one being, I think this is quite cool, and I actually never said that in public. He had a a theme park. Ah, uh, so I grew up in this kind of environments, you know, talking about business and competition and 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 my mom was more of the uh she was a psychologist and so got me interested in all sorts of ideas and yeah i th- suppose that's pretty much why <laughs> that's the short version
0: <laughs> oh that's that's pretty amazing i mean i'm just curious what it was like growing up with a father having a theme park i guess you spent lots of time in the game that was eh? pretty good
1: yeah <laughs> i spent all my weekends there i had the limit on how many crêpes i could eat in the park and you know all the things that i could do and not do but uh, yeah that, that was pretty good yeah
0: <laughs> okay let's leave that for uh, a episode so exclusively about that but um, yeah. now let's let's get into i mean this new field of research that you are pioneering it's called computational antitrust i mean give a short i mean a pitch of what it is like and what it does so for people who don't under, don't know about it
1: sure so i mean antitrust that's the the principles are quite easy it's the law of transactions between companies it may apply to individuals but that's the general idea so there are two types of practices that we tackle. Uh, The first are collusion. So when you have at least two economic entities agreeing on doing something illegal together, typically that will be raising prices. And the second type of practice uh, are the abuses of dominance or monopolization as they, or you say in, in the US. And here you look at just one market player, so powerful that the market player can abuse other market players and in the end, the consumer. So that's the antitrust part computational so that's the use of computational power computation so it's basically anything that is computer based so that's very broad uh you could talk about you know using ai super advanced deep learning unsupervised learning uh we can talk about blockchain i'm sure we will talk about blockchain today it could also be something you know more down to earth i suppose where you would do some sorts of network analysis or you will use a search engine or this kind of stuff. And so computational antitrust is the meeting between the two. Uh, you would think that it's a, it's a space that has been well researched, but actually we started that just two years ago. And, um, there, there are just a few papers that we have been trying to publish, but, but not, you know, nothing much. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, we could talk about all the agencies and, and, you know, the reactions we got. I was very surprised. So they are, I think we are moving in the right direction, uh, but mm-hmm. it's the, the very early days. So I just to make that very clear, I will probably disagree with most of what I will say in just five years from now. Right. Because I would change mind.
0: <laughs> Before getting into blockchain, I'm curious about first the impact of the digital economy and revolution, you know, on the... Market structures, you know, I think the main concern maybe is connected to to uh, big tech, you know, these big data monopolies, which have like global implications. Tell us a bit how uh, have you know the, the antitrust um, agencies reacted and uh, to to these you know big companies um, and big tech in general.
1: Sure. So, um, so for the most part, agencies they've been pretty vocal in saying that the tools meaning here the legal reasoning that we've been using for almost 100 100 years is valid and still may apply to the digital economy. So for the most part, antitrust has been pretty constant or linear in a sense. So all the concepts that we've been using for quite some time, such as the relevant market. So the relevant market is a, a space where companies will be Uh, will compete because they offer a substitute, right? So we've had case law in the 50s in the US regarding whether uh, Coke was a substitute to cafe um, or tea, you know, this kind of stuff, and we've been trying to transpose that in the space of antitrust uh, when it comes to digital economy. Uh, That leads to curious reasoning sometimes. Hmm. Um, uh, But for the most part, it's been pretty constant Um, now what they are trying to To come up with our new ways to use those reasoning to tackle the practices in a way that is most more effective. So an example would be the DMA, the Digital Markets Act in, in Europe. Um, it's pretty much using the things that we had already, but so that the enforcement side will be faster and more effective. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic whether or not this is a good idea, we could discuss that, but uh, so that's pretty much the tendency, right? So the agencies are in a sense on trying to argue that all we have is valid, but yet we may need something more so that we can apply the tools that we've been applying for quite some time.
0: Okay. And I mean, one of the things that I'm not by no means experts in antitrust law, but so what I understand is that antitrust regulations, when they find some company became too big, I mean, they try to cut it into pieces, right? And uh, to have it less market power?
1: Yeah. So it's highly <laughs> political what you just said um, and controversial in our space. Some, so yes and no. Uh, the theory is no. So in theory, the size of a company does not matter. Right. So Hmm. the fact that you are becoming a big company is not only doesn't, is not important for antitrust, but the theory is that it should be encouraged. If the reason why you are becoming a monopolist is because you have the better products, uh, the best products on the market and the better prices uh, amongst all the competitors, I mean, it's good. Right. We want this kind of companies to become big companies. Um, And so The theory is that the only thing we should tackle are the practices implemented by those companies. If you look at abuses of dominance. Mm -hmm. Um, In practice, however, you see that there is a uh, decorrelation between the size of the company and the practice. Let me explain. We are now going after some big companies such as Google and Facebook and punishing certain practices that they have implemented not because they were big companies but because they just wanted to implement those practices an example would be i am using your data that i collect if you use one of my products and i use that data to improve another product this is typically the kind of practice that any startup in the world could implement right it's a it's a secret practice you are not telling users what you are doing with the data, I could do that with a startup with two employees and two users. So there is no link between the size of my company and my ability to implement the practice. And yet the agencies are saying, well, this kind of practice is an abuse of a dominant position. So to make it clear, in theory, you don't care about the size. I mean, it's important, but it's step step one of the analysis. What you care about are the practices. But in practice, the way by which we've been applying antitrust means that, well, being bad is, you know, being sorry, being being uh, big, is bad in a sense, or at least we will try to tackle practices that would not be illegal for other companies.
0: Um, Let's start to get now into into blockchain. You know, I mean, how how does Web three know these new protocols? threaten maybe the dominant positions of uh, the web two big tech companies? Or, or do they or don't they?
1: Uh, they, they, They so <laughs> typical lawyer answer, both, it depends. Uh, <laughs> I think for the most part they do. Um, so if you talk about a public permissionless layer one uh, with no clear pilots in the cockpit, what, what we see is that To some degree, it may enhance consumer welfare, so you know you and me, um, because for several reasons. Reason number one is that if you develop a application on top of a public permissionless blockchain, let me take the Ethereum as an example, you know for a fact that you won't wake up the next day without access to the public permissionless blockchain, right? Because there is no one at Ethereum; it doesn't even mean anything right at Ethereum, there is no one that could just say, well, you know what, we've decided that uh, Kleros doesn't have access anymore. It, this, this is not technically possible. To the contrary, to what you see in the in the Web2 environment, right? if you design an app that functions on an iPhone or Android phone, it could be that tomorrow, Apple or Google or any other company has decided that you don't have access to the smartphone anymore and that they will cut access for you to offer the application to users. Uh, so in a sense, it's a new way to approach consumers and especially the developers in the ecosystem. Um, if data is shared at the layer one level, this could be used right for other companies to build new products and services. So this is a bit of what agencies have been obsessed with the idea of data sharing, but the layer one may enable you to, to do that. Uh, so. Fundamentally, it's a, it's, and I mean, this is, you know, I, I think not even controversial. Web 2 and Web 3, they have different incentive structures. Now, where you see a threat is that if Google wanted to create a public permissionless blockchain, they could do that. Certainly, they could do that. Could they convince users to use their public permissionless blockchain? I'm not sure. And the question is, but what would they gain? If the blockchain truly is public and permissionless, I'm, you know, I mean, it could be designed by Google, but then it doesn't mean anything. They don't have the control over it. So I'm not even sure that they have an interest in trying to design public permissionless blockchain. So in a sense, they are a bit stuck, right? They are facing a competition that they can't just copy, which is, by the way, everything that we do, and they do, and we see within the Web2 environments, they copy each other all the time. You have mm. stories, I have stories. You do reels, I do reels. But they can't really copy Web3 because they have nothing to gain. So that's part of the answer. The other part is they are also using Web3 to, I believe, attract some users and to signal to those users, look, you can trust Google, you can trust Facebook because some of our features will be Web3 related and we don't really control the use make of it. And so in a sense, it's a way for them to recover on the relationship with users. So they compete with Web3, but they may also try to use it and utilize it to to retain customers over time.
0: Good. You know, I read your paper about uh, web 2 and web 3 that was published I think very recently and uh, one of the things I was thinking so in a world where you know web 3 develops and you know we start using more web 3 apps uh, and abandon the web 2 you know data monopolies do we still need um, antitrust agencies against web 3 or that's so you know,
1: Against or for Web3?
0: Um, I mean, let's imagine that some of these Web3 protocols that become large, I mean, because of network effects and all that, they become, you know, a huge, I mean, uh, piece of infrastructure. And then someone would argue that, I mean, the governance of that protocol starts to behave in a way that would look a bit like, you know, the Web2 behavior, you know, a governance could block competitors or or whatever, you know. What, what, What would it look like, I mean? So, yeah, I mean, the reason why I asked you the question, and by the way,
1: this paper is, uh, you can access that in, uh, it's open access, right? Um, um, So the reason why I asked the question is that there is a tendency for the policymakers and the enforcers, especially, to address um, the market players in a way that is confrontational. And I think for good reasons, when it comes to web two companies and antitrust agencies, they don't have—they don't share the same objective, right? The objective of those agencies allegedly is to increase consumer welfare. And the objective of those companies might be to increase consumer welfare, but fundamentally they are here to make a profit, right? The, the, this is the reason for a company. So I understand why there is a confrontation and I think this is not necessarily valid when it comes to web three, because again, I mean, at the layer one, um, of a blockchain, the you can't make a point that the sole objective of the Ethereum is to make profit, right? There are lots of objectives, and one of which being to decentralize, which is kind of what agencies want to achieve. They want to decentralize economic opportunities, right? So in a sense, the objective of those agencies and Web3 is similar. This is why I wrote a book entitled Blockchain plus Antitrust, because I think the two complements one another. Now, The two have limits. I will give you one limit for antitrust agencies. We have empirical work showing that we detect very few of all the infringements in the space. Uh, About 12, they say, to 18% of all antitrust infringements. And this is why I think that maybe indeed if we use more of Web3, as I explained, you get rid of certain practices and therefore this is good for also the agencies there is there is less to detect on the market but to answer your question web3 is also limited and this those are a few of the examples that i discuss in the paper what if there is a web2 player acting against web3 um the code of web3 can't do anything right so if google and facebook and and amazon decide to prohibit blockchain advertisements. Uh, you can code your Web3 app all you want. There is nothing you can do. Google has the policy not to allow advertisement. And this is where you may need antitrust agencies to help Web3, right? And at a more technical level, of course, you have the layer one, but on top of which you could design you know, different applications and, and, and services. And there it's more centralized and you could see antitrust issues arising. So you know, I could perfectly design a product on top of the Ethereum layer, um, but control the product and and start excluding some players from my product in a way that will be a refusal to deal. So yes, I think we fundamentally need antitrust, but we also need to rethink the way by which we've been applying antitrust and use it as an ally to Web3 and not just in a confrontational way, which is what we've been doing for nearly four thousand years, right? Hmm. Since the code of Hammurabi, we've been applying the law
0: that way. You know, uh, there was um, a tweet I made, like, a couple of years ago, and this resonates with that. So I was saying something like, you know, governments are so, like, concerned, you know, with blockchain because of, uh, well, AML and finance regulation and all that, and they are kind of missing a big part of what blockchain can bring them, which is that, I mean, a tool to fight the big data monopolies that is actually, you know, those who are threatening you know because of their sheer power on global scale and the fact that they operate in different jurisdictions they're like really hard to get right so what if like governments kind of ally with web 3 in order to weaken you know the (laughs) web 2 monopolies and what do you think of that yeah so
1: uh, (laughs) you know this was the core of the idea of the book and actually prior to publishing the book, I co-authored a paper with Vitalik Buterin entitled Blockchain Code as Antitrust. This is precisely the point we're making, that the code of blockchain at the layer one level, talking about public permissionless blockchains, may enable you to achieve some of the objectives that antitrust agencies want to achieve. You could take a step back and make the same point for data protection agencies, right? I mean, if I use a um, cold wallet... Uh, and if I you know know how to use it, uh, it may be a way for me to protect my own data, to better control my data, to maybe, get our incentive to give my, my data away. So in a sense, it achieves some of the objective of the GDPR. And you could go on and on and on and make, make the very same point for financial regulation, we've been trying for more inclusion. Well, you could do that also with Web3. So indeed, the tendency is just to look at the problems and to say, oh, blockchain is problematic for GDPR because there is a right to be forgotten. How do you enforce that in a blockchain environment? Indeed, it's problematic, but that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is that because of the actual design of blockchain, you could achieve lots of the objective that we've been trying to achieve with what I would call uh, legal solutionism, right? So using <clears> just the textual aspects of the law, it's great to some degree, but it's 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 necessary, but it's not sufficient. So I also wish for agencies and governments to to use the tech to better enable the objectives and improve the common good in the way they want to improve the common good.
0: Interesting. I have also this idea that, I mean, if you see the big... um, antitrust cases brought against, you know, technology companies. I think maybe the first one in the, I mean, I'm speaking in the last 50 years or something. Like that. I think the first one, as you know, IBM was accused of uh, some, anti- I mean, trust practices. Then there was a Microsoft and then came a Google, Facebook. I mean, and yep. I'm, I'm wondering what is actually the, efficiency of antitrust regulation to fight those monopolies, or is it just that the industry changes because of technology and they just, you know, this already disrupts through natural market forces, the power of of these companies?
1: So I would argue that no one can actually answer your question. And this is precisely the problem. And in fact, this is precisely the reason why we with a a bunch of friends have created uh, a new initiative that we introduced about a year ago uh, called the Dynamic Competition Initiative, in which we are making a point that people, so the Microsoft case is a good example, 2001 in the United States, 2004 here in Europe. Um, And we are still debating and there are still conferences being organized to assess whether or not this was a good or a bad decision and whether or not it had an effect on Microsoft or if just the market took care of it and eventually forced Microsoft to adapt. And we don't know. And I think we don't know because the way by which we've been approaching those uh, cases and antitrust in, in general is very static. So, what we do is that we rely on linear economics, neoclassical economic theory, and that does not allow you to capture the dynamics on the market. And if you can't capture the dynamics on the market, well, you don't have a counterfactual to assess whether or not uh, Microsoft changed behaviors. Because of the case, or just because of the dynamics on the market? So I mean, it's 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 a it's a complex subject. Uh, but I think if we put together in the same room some antitrust lawyers, some economists, some historians that we totally neglect right now, right? They're not part of the conversation, and some technologists, uh, we could probably come up with the beginning of an answer. And. It might be that in one or two years, I could come back on the podcast and actually give you a better answer to your question. But again, some people will tell you that they know that the Microsoft case was good or bad, and I will make a point that no, it's actually uh, part of the story, but we haven't captured yet the entire story.
0: Interesting. Um, well, I would very much like to have you in the podcast discuss that because i um, uh, yeah, I mean that—that that was my thesis. Of course, I'm not no expert. I do like you know this Schumpeterian view of you know um, innovation happening and disrupting all things and you know creating destruction. Um, and I'm, and this is a speculative question, so you might not have an answer. I, I'm sure you don't have an answer. But so we have Web three we have this thesis that is going to replace at least many of the capacities of Web 2. So what happens when Web 3 thesis is fully developed and everything became Web 3? I mean, what does Web 4 look like? Because we will have like trust and monopoly problems in the Web 3 ecosystem and malicious behavior by by, by, by these big protocols. Uh,
1: yeah, so <laughs> the good thing is that you said you you... Disclosed that I could not possibly answer the question, the so yeah, the question. So I'm um, at least, you know, I'm at ease in saying that I don't know. But you know, it's funny because now we all think about web three in a I mean there is no official definition, but we have a common understanding of what it is. But actually 20 years ago, some scholars started using the term web three. In a totally different sense, that I, I keep on reading about and and forget because I'm now you know so into the new Web three in a sense, uh, but it's funny how we try to label the different versions of the web. So my point is that may I could try to give you a sense of what Web four might be, but of course this this will eventually prove to be wrong and a new concept, new definition of it will will appear. Um, but you know I haven't even tried to think about it if so web3 is indeed the how we possess that is not something that we may have in a web2 environment um what will come down with web4 m- might be i you know i'm i can't so i've been trying to research how at some point ai and blockchain will collide mm-hmm. and what may be the baby coming out of those two i've explained to the european commission in a report that You could already use AI to detect problems in the code of a smart contract before you put the smart contract on the chain, uh, that potentially you could also have machine learning play the roles of the oracles in a smart contract. So not trying to escape your question, but I, I would say my guess would be that Web4 would be better integrating AI that is not at all right now in the infrastructure of the web and blockchain, which might be indeed the Web3 environment. So we'll see if I'm right. Uh, You could call me wrong in uh, what, 20, 30 years from now?
0: (laughs) I mean, there was a a previous disclosure or a disclaimer of, you know, that you don't have the answer, so it's fine. I mean, it's, but if we take it out of context, you know. uh, (laughs) So, but I mean, one of the the things that um, I also see, and this is uh, the way in which maybe I try to find an answer to this question uh, is, You know, every of these waves of innovation of, you know, Microsoft and software, you know, then uh, the data, you know, uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook. So, you know, they started like with a very positive, I mean, social, you know, um, context. You know, Bill Gates was a hero, you know, Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook, he was a hero, democratizing access to information, communication for everyone. And, you know, they end up becoming the villains when they become too big. You no, know, when they become the monopoly, and you know that's when they start to get attacked by well, and everyone kind of seems to be happening to Elon Musk in some way. But um, I don't know what this is going to look like when I mean Web three becomes the big one who is like defending the entrenched power, and and yeah, and we when we are the billions, and like, who is going to come from the Web four to disrupt us? I mean, otherwise, you know, maybe this is the end of the internet. You know, this is the end of history. And you know that's the ultimate. Yeah. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so,
1: you know, I I think you might be right, but it depends on how I would say on how Web three will evolve. If it evolves true to the original idea of having network effect, but without the power that usually comes with network effect, or at least in the Web two environment, uh, then I'm not sure that Web three people will be the villains because it will become hard to put a face, right? On an ecosystem, uh, we have a human tendency to do that. So we will have a few names in mind for the, you know, to to represent what is blockchain. Uh, but in fact, those people have more influence than than some others, to be sure. But they are not in charge of Web three and blockchain as Mark Zuckerberg is in charge of Facebook. So if it stays in this direction, I would say probably we'll be fine. If, however, it moves in the direction that you are designing kind of a Web 2 thing, but on top of a Web 3, uh, well, then if you are in charge, you could be Steve Jobs, great pilot in the cockpits. Everyone loves Steve Jobs, especially since he passed away, I suppose. Um, but it could also be that you are indeed Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm not here to argue that he did a bad job, but we know that there is a trust issue at Facebook because people do not trust Mark Zuckerberg. And in fact, I think Wired is conducting a yearly uh, survey and the, re- the number one reason why people are not using Facebook is precisely because of that, because they do mm. not trust Mark Zuckerberg. Not because they think that Instagram isn't cool or that TikTok is cooler, right? But it's for the trust the trust elements. So if Web3 Web moves in this direction of uh, fundamentally using a distributed decentralized layer, but recapturing power uh, at the the uh at this you know a not upper um uh, layer uh, on mm. on the chain uh then we will indeed face that and web four will come and uh will vilify the web 3 people especially especially if I'm right in my prediction that web 4 is blockchain plus AI which I just made up by the way um, <laughs> then the question will become can we do we trust ai more than we trust humans and so far the answer to this question is negative right if there is a driveless car causing an accident that's all over the news a human being causing an accident is okay uh, ask people if they are willing to board a plane where there is no pilots but just an ai system most people i'm sure would say no to you there is no way uh, in 10 20 years from now we'll see, we may be in a different position. So Web4, if indeed that is AI plus blockchain, it might be that we will trust AI so much as a human species that uh, uh, indeed it would verify the Web3 environment. But this is highly speculative, of course.
0: When I was um, years ago uh, living in in Silicon Valley and I was at Singularity University, I had a a teacher there. He used to say something about the, this was 2016, so a long time ago already. And he had this idea of how people will view um, AI. He said, people don't like two things to happen. I mean, one being um, killed by an AI, like so autonomous cars having an accident, very bad press. So, yep. uh, and second, they don't, they would never like to be sent to jail by an AI. And, and this is something that touches, you know, Clara is very close because Lots of the questions we have about the evolution of the industry is what if we get some like machine learning, you know, algorithm that is perfect, at, at, you know, at, at, I mean, deciding court cases, right? So do yeah. you actually need humans? And what comes from our research is that, I mean, you could use an AI for doing the decision, but still people will like to have a appeal instance where humans are still as pilots right? So far, yeah. So 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 far, far. so far.
1: So far, indeed. So um, that's something I'm actually using in a classroom. Um, You may be under the impression that, so if we go for the courts, the legal system, right? that if you have all the elements, you will be in a position to put in jail all the bad people and to put in, you know, just back to society, all the good people. Now, the MIT Tech Review published a simulation of Compass, which was used in the United States. Um, I'll give you the title of the article. You can access, I think, a few of their articles in for free. Uh, It's called, Can You Make AI Fairer Than a Judge? And then the subtitle is Play Our Courtroom algorithm game. And you will get to a point where at some point you have to make almost a political or philosophical choice as to whether or not you are willing to put one innocent man in jail for the purpose of putting 100 guilty ones in jail, or if you are more of the kind to say, well, you know what, I will never do that. Never Mm. put an innocent man in jail, which may mean that because you don't have all the information in society, you will necessarily have to put also bad people outside, back in society. Uh, You may may want to try and play that. My point is that some algorithms can be compared and you could make a point that certain algorithms are better than others for specific tasks, right? So something that I use also with my students is that I say, okay, we're gonna rank uh, information or we're gonna get ranked numbers or Hmm. documents, with you know how many pages they have, or whatever you may want to do. Certain algorithms will do that in just one second and others will do that in two minutes. So yes, the one that could make the, the task in one second is better than the other one. Easy. But sometimes it's hard to say which algorithm is best because it depends on your morals and your philosophy. Hmm. And I think the more it goes, the more we're going to have to face those choices. And so the reason why I'm excited by the AI revolution in a sense, especially in legal scholarship is that it forces us to answer questions that we've been trying to avoid for quite some time, just you know, relying on the idea that the human brain is a black box and that was it. Uh, now you have to put all that before the, spot, the, the spotlight and, and I think it's actually raising some fascinating issues. So we'll see, I guess, now we're gonna get an answer to all of those questions, what, I mean, what do we do?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, let me get you to um, back to the, the discussion about um, you know the Zuckerberg. I mean, if you have a good or bad pilot, because well, if we follow this idea of Web three becoming the standard, and we have this idea of um, users being able to control the governance of these platforms, so what? What are the main concerns moving forward about how Web3 platforms are going to be governed by users and and how this will impact the trust that people have in them? The main... So,
1: um, I mean, my own personal bias being trained as an antitrust caller, um, you know, I see risk for collusion pretty much everywhere. (laughs) Hmm. Um, You you do have a good example of that where it was a good... I mean, collusions can be good, right? So give you an example uh, that is not very well known. Uh, in uh, two thousand and nineteen, so just four years ago from now, uh, a uh, user of the uh, Bitcoin cash blockchain, I think mainly uh, is uh, pseudonym was how many uh, was checking the code of Bitcoin, right? the core the core software, just for the sake of it. And he discovered a bug that will, if exploited, allow everyone to double spend Bitcoin. This was just four years ago, by the way. The value was really high. um. Now he could have he had a choice. Obviously, he could just exploit the bug. It could just he he was also in a position to just reveal that and make sure that lots of people will exploit the bug, which would have mean probably, you know, lead to the end of Bitcoin, such as we know it. Or, and this is what he had has done in this case he actually decided to send an email to some of the core developers that he knew, including uh, Corey Field and, and a few others, saying there is a bug. Uh, now, uh, I'm just giving you the information, um, and um, if, if you want to try to patch the bug and to push the release of a new version of the Bitcoin Core software, I can help you with that. And this is what they've done. Now, very in- interestingly, when they proposed to update the software the same day, they didn't say the re- that the reason for the new version of the software was because you could exploit a bug and double spend the Bitcoin. Uh, they yeah. actually announced that after most of the users have decided to to implement and, uh, the, the new version of the software. But my point is that despite the fact that Bitcoin here in that case is distributed and decentralized, there are zone of, of power, right, in an ecosystem. And those can always be in a in a position to collude behaviors with others. And so, in a sense, the, the point I'm trying to make is that the tyranny of the majority uh, may be something that we will face and become more pregnant in, in the blockchain ecosystems, where certain users will try to push the majority in a certain direction, if, if they manage and have the, the influence to do that, uh, may end up in a situation that is not necessarily improving the common good, which is not something we have to face, right? There is no tyranny of the majority when it comes to Facebook and Google. It's the tyranny of a few people at the very top of the mountain uh, in Palo Alto, right? So who knows which tyranny is best? I would say the tyranny of the majority is better than the tyranny of a small minority. Um, hmm. But again, this is my personal take on it, and don't not everyone has to agree with that.
0: I mean, can you, I mean, use computational antitrust tools in order to detect these collusions that might be happening in the governance level? You know, some coins voting bo- in the same way. I mean, how can this be used for that purpose?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, there are many ways. Um, it de- it depends on how it's done. Um, in my example, they sent emails and then eventually phone call. If you get access to the data, uh, what you can do is use NLP, Natural Language Processing. Uh, The FTC, it's Public Information, is actually doing that. They have a tool that they call Relativity, uh, that enables the the Federal Trade Commission, sorry, the FTC, to uh, detect whether or not companies have colluded before submitting documents in the case of public tenders. And the beauty of it is that of course, not the, all the information is public. Otherwise, you could develop an adversarial technique and escape. But what we know is that you don't have to have the exact same prices or the word collusion or you know the name of the other companies. Despite the companies being a bit a bit clever, it can still detect that most likely they have colluded somewhere. So the use of NLP, I think, is a big one. Uh, unsupervised learning also uh, is trying. I mean, we are trying to push for that at the computational antitrust project, and we see the first result. We will actually, in 2023, publish a paper in the space explaining how ML can actually be used for the purpose. Uh, You could do network analysis. It's also quite clever what you could do with it. In a few days, we will publish a paper uh, showing that you could actually put together groups of decisions, but decisions are text based on the similarity and, and detect patterns as out of the visualization you make of the the entire network. So there are many tools, way too many, in fact, for me to to go deep inside all of those right now. Uh, But I'm under the impression that we're gonna have no choice but to go in this direction, right? You can't just have market players incredibly more sophisticated and uh, the regulators with the good old fashioned technique of just throwing 100 interns on, on the on the case, right? It, it doesn't work that way. If you, you need to scale up, a good example was the Google Shopping. They had to analyze 1.7 billion documents. Uh, you can have all the interns that you want, you, it won't do the trick. So you're going to have to invest in computational tools no matter what. Hmm.
0: Um, okay, um, that's a bad future for interns and replaced by AI, you know, in the world of antitrust, at least.
1: Or or they will make use <laughs> of AI,
0: right? Or it, it could also be, yeah, that you will use GPT,
1: chat GPT-15 yeah. by the time and become a better intern. Uh, but the old, I mean, I've seen, you know, back in the days, I'm not that old, but I've seen rooms with 100 interns uh, putting just a just with the one task, which was to write the transcript of phone conversation uh, recorded between traders, to mm-hmm. detect whether or not eventually you will see one trader one day saying yes, I agreed with another one, and that was it. So first of all, it's highly inefficient. All they were doing for six months of internship was to record and transcript all the conversations, uh, but plus the analysis can't be good. Because if no trader is actually saying, well, yes, I have colluded with another one, uh, you cannot detect patterns out of you know emerging conversations. So I think, no, it's a bright future for intern and actually uh, a better future than what used to be the case 20 years ago. Why? Because the tech divide that we will see between generations may actually put interns and young associates, young people in companies in a, su- in a situation where they master the tech the technical aspects, and that therefore the top of those institutions may need to rely on them, right? Because they understand the tech and not the top of the management, which wasn't a thing 30 years ago. So I would say, don't be a dinosaur. Be be young and <laughs> be aware of the tech. Uh, and and if so, I'm pretty sure you're gonna uh, go up in the hierarchy quite fast.
0: Awesome. Well, um, I'm just heading to the end of this this podcast. Um, Just one last question. What um, materials, readings or videos can you recommend to people who want to learn more about computational antitrust and everything we have been discussing uh, today?
1: Uh, So quite a few. Um, Everything I do and all the projects I'm engaged with are open access. Uh, So that's the first good news. Now let me give you a list. For computational antitrust, if you just Google, or Bing, or DuckDuckGo, or use a Web3 um, equivalent to that, computational antitrust, you will you will find the, the project. You could also just enter the URL, computationalantitrust.com. It will lead you to our website at uh, Stanford. And there you can access all the papers. We organize a yearly conference. They are recorded. Everything is put on YouTube. So uh, that's one. Uh, for blockchain antitrust. If you are interested in the intersection between the two, I've recorded 15 videos that correspond to the 15 chapters of my book, which by the way is also accessible in open access. Uh, So if you just enter my name on uh, YouTube, uh, you will find those 15 videos. Uh, If you are really into it, I may organize a summer school. There is a website where you could get a certificate, uh, blockchain um, onlinecourse.org uh, but uh, yeah I think th- those are pretty much all the resources and uh, for the rest um, you can find pretty much all I write at uh, networklawreview.org where I invite a bunch of scholars to to publish regular articles on the subject so and please be in touch don't be in but don't be a stranger uh, you and, can find my email address and follow him
0: on twitter follow Thibaut on twitter what's your twitter handle?
1: Yeah, so also Twitter, of course, Uh, we talked about Elon Musk. Uh, So it's Prof, um, like Professor uh, Schreppel, my last name. Um, So yeah, please, uh, Twitter is a lot of fun. Um, So engage with me on Twitter, by all means.
0: Awesome, well, Thibault, thank you very much for being asked uh, today. Um, This was another episode of the Centralized Justice broadcast. I am Federico As, President of the Cooperative Cleros. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.